Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. If you came to church today and you're like, why did I come to church on a rainy day to hear this awkward passage? Uh, We learned that it's through broken stories that God does bring his greatest grace. And we're going to see that time and time again. If you've been journeying with us through this book, uh, you have recognized that there is tons of brokenness that happens in people's lives. And all of Genesis is not about how good people are. It's about how good God is. Amen? And yet another week this week is seeing a broken story in a broken home with broken people. And his best grace is in the broken and messy of life. Amen? So guys, that's what we're covering today. Today is really part two. If you're new, if it's your first time coming here, I promise there is good in every passage for us. And this is part two of last week's sermon. So if you're taking sermon notes, you can title it this, Greater Grace for Our Greatest Sins. And so last week, we've been following along sort of an origin story of a man named Joseph. Joseph has 11 other brothers. His dad is Jacob. And we're learning about that this brother is a favorite brother of his dad. His dad gives him a coat of many colors. His brothers hate him. His brothers end up throwing him in a pit. Then Judah, which we're going to study today, is like, hey, let's not leave him or even kill him in that pit. Let's, let's sell him Let's sell him away into Egypt. And so the brothers do that. They get back to their dad and they say, dad, they lie to him. And they said, here's his jacket. Here's his coat of many colors. They drench it in some blood and say, dad, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but your beloved son, Joseph, he he died. And his dad gets really sad and kind of goes away from all the siblings and neglects them. And then all of a sudden, oddly enough, the story picks up with Judah. Now, just real quick, if you like cut this whole chapter out, the Bible does go smoothly from chapter 37 to 39, really smoothly right into Joseph's story. But it like goes a screeching halt right here in chapter 38 to cover this really peculiar story between Judah and Tamar. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is this passage here? And guys, just real quick, you might be asking God the same thing in your own life right now. Like, God, why am I here? In this really broken story, I mean, maybe you don't even want to be in Boston. Your, your roommate situation, your, your spouse, your work, like everything's just a disaster. And you're like, God, why am I here? This story is for you. It's to show you that no matter what, if it interrupts the storyline of what you want for your life, God has a meaning and a purpose for this story and for you in your story. And so today's story about Judah and Tamar is really about the downward spiral of what happens with sin. But all along the way in the downward spiral, God wants to meet us there, pull us out, and help us walk with him so much better. As I was thinking about this passage, there was this movie in the 80s. I'm always watching 80s and 90s movies. There was this one movie called Money Pit. Have you guys seen that silly little movie, Tom Hanks and Shelley Long? They play this couple where they buy this huge mansion, but for super cheap. And as soon as they buy it, the mansion begins to fall apart. Have you guys seen this movie? Raise your hand if, you're, if I'm 
what three and a half people, four and a half people. Brandon, you're kind of like two people, so maybe five, okay? Buys this house and it falls apart. Uh, the front door, when they open it, just rips off the wall. The main staircase, which is elaborate, falls completely down. The plumbing is full of gunk. The electrical system catches on fire. The bathtub ends up crashing down through the floors. The chimney collapses and a raccoon is living in the dumbwaiter. Like this is a terrible situation for them. Their money for renovations run out. They can never get the permits they need. And their relationship almost collapses under all of this stress. Guys, all roughly 91 minutes of this movie is about how the characters are on a downward spiral into chaos. And that's exactly what you see with Judah and Tamar. You see the downward spiral of three people that we're gonna see or three uh, categories of people we're gonna see today. We're gonna see Judah, we're gonna see his three sons and we're gonna see his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But in the end, at the very end of this downward spiral, we're gonna see how God is greater and has a greater grace for us in our greatest sins. So if you've been with us uh, last week, uh, we're, again, this is a part two. And so here's what we've been seeing. We've been seeing this formula, okay? If you guys remember this, you kind of nod your head if you remember. Here's a formula we see. When unhealed wounds, this is point number one, by the way, when unhealed wounds collide with unchecked desires, it results in ungodly choices that hurt you and hurt others. Do you guys remember that point? I know the screens are going out a little bit today. Our tech guys are doing the best they can. It's not their fault. Don't blame it on them. They're doing their best. But that's the formula. When unhealed wounds collide with unchecked desires, it results in ungodly choices that hurt you and others. And here's the first person that we'll see that with. We'll see that with Judah. Let's jump into the passage starting in verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Now guys, when the passage starts out with it happened at that time, like you know something bad is gonna go down, amen? And unfortunately it does. In fact, do you see those two little phrases in that verse? It says, he went down and he turned aside. Those two phrases aren't just physical descriptions, guys. Those are spiritual descriptions. They're showing us the spiritual state of Judah's relationship with who? With God. Guys, his faith is plummeting downwards as he continually turns aside from God further and further and further off from him. This story picks up right after he sells his brother into slavery. And we see him turn away from his brothers and go down away from his brothers. And he turns to an old buddy that's gonna get him in some trouble. In fact, we see at the end of verse one that he connects with this old buddy of his names, Hurrah, who was a, a Dulamite, which is, a, it's a local guy, a Dulamite. He's a local from a neighboring town in Canaan that doesn't have the best reputation for loving and following God in his ways. And unfortunately, while he's hanging out here with Hirah, in verse two, here's what happens. While he was hanging out, verse two, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite <clears throat> whose name was Shua. This is the mother's name. He took Shua's daughter and he went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. Verse four, she conceived again. Some time has passed and bore a son. 
And this time she calls his name Onan. Verse five, yet again, more time has passed. She bores another son and she called his name Shalah. Judah was in Jezeb when she bore him. Unfortunately, guys, these verses show us the continual downhill spiral of Judah's relationship with God. Guys, at best, I'm just gonna be honest with you, at best, verse two indicates, at best, that Judah took Shua's daughter in consensual marriage and had children with her, at best. However, let's be real. If you read this text more closely, the text lends itself to this understanding that Judah forcefully took Shua's daughter and had sex with her. This is sexual abuse. If this was consensual marriage, by the way, we'd probably see that phrase, he took a wife for himself. Because we've seen that phrase already six times in the book of Genesis when it was consensual. However, this time with Judah, that phrase is not here. We see him take her, go into her, and conceive a son we see just how far Judah is spiraling here. Again, what are we seeing? Judah's unhealed relational wounds have collided with his unchecked desires for sex and intimacy. By the way, sex and intimacy are not bad desires, but when you take a good desire and you go about it the wrong way, it leads to hurt and pain. That's what Judah's done. His unhealed relational wounds with his dad, not being the favorite, being neglected, being ignored all his life. He's wanting connection. He's wanting intimacy, but he goes about it the wrong way. The unhealed wound, the unchecked desire collides and it results in ungodly choices. The ungodly choices of sex and abuse with a woman that he doesn't even know. Guys, even later, we find out it gets worse in verse 16. Verse 16, we learn that he pursued sex with the woman that he thought was a prostitute and ends up being his daughter-in-law. He doesn't even recognize her. He's so caught in on himself, his selfish desires that he doesn't even recognize her voice or anything about her. The downward spiral is in full motion in his life. Now, to our surprise in the story, if you keep reading, we end up actually seeing that he stays with this woman, Judah does. We learn later in verse 11 that he actually ends up marrying her at some point in time, and they have three children together. Do you see that in the passage? Three children. Ur, the firstborn, Onan, the second, and Shelah, the third. Yet even, guys, if you look through the details of the story— even in the retelling of their births, you can see Judah's downhill spiral of selfishness. Do you see it? Guys, look at it. In verse three, we see him, Judah, physically be there. He is present at the birth of his firstborn son. He's present, he's there. As was custom, Judah then names his son. The father's traditional role was to name his son. And he does that. And he gives them this name, Ur. But yet the spiral continues. Yet in verse four, we see him physically there at the birth of his second son, but then he abdicates his role in naming his son. And so the mother names the son and names him Onan. 
But then sadly, the spiral continues. The house falls apart. The stairwell caves in. Then sadly, the third son is born in verse five. But this time, Jude is nowhere to be found. He's not even there at his child's birth. There's no circumstance. There's no military service. There's no reason why he's not there. He just doesn't care to be there. And he doesn't even care to name him. Because as verse five tells us, look at it. He was just off in another land in Chezeb when she gave birth to Shelah. Judah's unhealed relational wounds collided with his unchecked desires for ease and comfort. Too many kids in the house was bothering him. It was getting a little too much. So he found a hobby, found his man cave, found his computer. It's time to put the kids to bed. Finds another place to be and abdicates his role as a father. He wants ease and comfort. Leaves his wife, leaves his kids, goes to another land for some time. Leads to ungodly choices of abdication and neglect from his responsibilities as a husband and father. Let's pause here just for a quick moment. If I can just speak to the husbands and the fathers in the room. And if you desire to be a husband and a father one day. Guys, I don't know your backstory, your personal story with your mom, with your dad, with a guardian. I don't know the hurt and the wounds that are there. But here's what I learned from this passage, that men, we cannot, we cannot repeat the wounds that we have received from our fathers. We can't repeat them. Gentlemen, we must flip the script. If you're a Christian in the room, you have a new heavenly father, a new one, a heavenly father who loves you men, who is attentive to you, and who is there for you in the highest and lowest moments of your life, men. And men, we must receive that to heal our wounds when our fathers didn't love us, weren't attentive, and were not there. Receive that in your wound. And then, men, can we relay that love onto our wives and our children? Men, we've got to flip the script. And the wounds that may be passed from your granddad to your dad, from your dad to you, you can be the generational stop with how you receive love from your new heavenly father. Does that make sense? Men, we've got to flip the script. Receive his love, then relay his love to others. Men, can I hear an amen? Also, just a quick word here to our single men in the room. Men, if you're not ready to take the daily responsibility of surrendering and sacrificing and serving another person, if you're not quite ready for that, that is okay. Maybe you need to take some time to heal from some wounds. But if you're not daily ready to surrender your life and sacrifice and serve another person, then hear me please in love. Don't yet pursue dating. Don't yet pursue marriage quite yet. Because as a Christian, men, if you aren't surrendering, if you aren't sacrificing, if you aren't serving Christ of all people, then men, you certainly won't be ready to then serve another person in marriage if you're not yet even willing to serve Christ, your Lord and Savior. Men, my goal is not to call you out here or hurt you or tell you you're not ready. My main goal is actually 
call you in from hurting yourself and hurting others. Single men, listen, you first need to rest in the surrender, sacrifice, and service that Christ has done for you. Rest in that first. When you receive that he surrendered, he sacrificed, and he served you, when you rest in that and receive that, and you're filled up with that, then you're ready. Because you're not gonna look to your spouse or that partner to serve, sacrifice, and surrender for you to be a whole man. You find it first in Christ. You're filled up with it. You see what he's done for you on the cross. You see how he's been with you. You see how he's loved you. You're filled up with that. And then you say, I'm ready to die for this woman. I'm ready to give my life for her. Sacrifice myself, my preferences, my heart. I'll be there for her. I'll give her my all. And that's when we're ready, men. What I see often, not at our church, by God's grace, and I'm so grateful for you men, what I often see in our culture, I see with my neighbors and my friends that I love, I'm watching them use women like Judah. Use women in the bedroom, the workplace, emotionally, date after date, using women in order to fill up those wounds they've had since they were a boy. Just wanting connection, wanting intimacy, wanting care, wanting attention that they never got. Men flip the script. Let's not repeat the wounds that were received by us we can look at the wounds of Christ and say, someone else took those wounds so I could be healed. Amen? Man, this is what we've got to step into. Let's not repeat what we see with Judah. Is that okay, guys? Goal is not to be mean to you. Call you out to call you in something better, okay? Well, unfortunately, church, uh, Judah doesn't heed that advice in this passage. Judah doesn't. So he seeks out sex, Right? And he seeks out relationships and he seeks out children, all in the hopes that they would serve him, right? That they would heal him from his past, from his neglect, from his dad. So what should Judah have done instead is the question. What do we need to do instead as men and women in our unhealed wounds? Like we said last week, here's what we need to do. We need to seek healing, help, and hope in Christ rather than creation. Amen? We've got to look to the right person and not to other places to heal the wounds. Here's the gospel antidote that I want to share with you that I wish someone would have shared with Judah. Here's what his heart needed to hear in his wounds. The wounds of neglect. He needed to hear 1 John 3, 1. He needed to hear how great is the love of the Father that has been lavished on you, Judah, that you would be called a child, not of Jacob, but a child of God. And that is what we are, children of God. He needs to hear that. He needs to hear that the love of his heavenly father was better than the love of his other father. And he can follow that heavenly father wherever he goes. That can help heal that wound. He needs to hear Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. He needs to hear, blessed be that God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's what he's done. That father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Judah was neglected. Maybe you have. Maybe growing up, work got your dad's attention. Work got the blessing. Travel got the blessing. Another woman in the house, at another house, got the blessing, got the attention. The sibling did. For some of you, maybe you didn't know your father. This father tells you that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has been given to you. 
even the blessing of choosing you before the foundation of the world so that you would be in a relationship with him one day through your faith and then be wholly forgiven and blameless before him. This is the love of the father. And then lastly, he needs to hear Mark 1. Because we're in Christ, here's what God says to us as well. He says, you are my beloved child. You're my beloved son and daughter with whom I'm well pleased. This is what Judah needs to hear. And in your wounds, that's what you need to hear. Even if a father never hurt you, a mother never hurt you, if friends wounded you, a dating relationship wounded you, a spouse wounded you, these are the truths we can hold on to. Amen? Number two, let's pivot now and look at the sons. Because what was passed down in the favoritism between Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob, Jacob passed down the problems onto Judah. Judah passes down these problems onto his sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. It keeps going generationally, and you're watching the worst of the generations in this passage. Let's look at these three sons and see what happens. Verse six, you guys ready? Verse six, verse six. So Judah, a little time has passed, his kids have grown up. He comes back around at some point. And he takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But verse seven, but Ur, Jodah's firstborn, he was so wicked in the sight of the Lord, the Lord put him to death. Now guys, this is somewhat startling. This is the first time we have seen something like this in Genesis, where someone is just so wicked in their life that God puts them to death. Like, we don't know if it's immediate. We don't know if it's a gradual things through sickness. We don't know, but we know that he's so wicked. God says, it is better for you and your family for me to take you out of the equation in justice. This is a severe punishment. We see the first son obviously is following in the steps of his dad. Onan, let's look at him. Verse eight. So the firstborn son is Dead, Tamar is now unmarried. She's sad. She's heartbroken in some ways. Verse eight, then Judah says to his secondborn, Onan, he says, Onan, I want you to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now this might seem extremely odd to us in 2023 where this custom is not practiced. What I want you to see here is that Judah is instructing his second son to fulfill a custom of a type of marriage. It's a Leverite marriage, which required a brother to marry his brother's childless widow to give her children, to actually be a type of widow welfare during the day. And so we see a moment of Judah actually trying to honor God. And in fact, God gave this in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 for the people of Israel at that time. God instituted this and Judah says, I want to take care of Tamar. So Onan, my second son, I want you to marry her. And I want you to give her a son so that son would end up growing up one day and taking care of Tamar. I know this is odd to us nowadays, but at that time, that was actually a good system for a widow to be taken care of, protected, guided in her old age and and loved and and nurtured. But Onan, verse nine, didn't see it the same way. 
Verse nine, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. He's selfish. So whenever he went to his brother's wife, which means this happened several times, whenever he went, this is so sad. Whenever he went to his brother's wife, the text says that he would waste the semen on the ground as so to not give offspring to his brother. Verse 10, and what he did was wicked sight of the Lord. So what did God do? The second son he puts to death. Guys, Onan knew that this offspring would not be his if he had a child with Tamar. While publicly on the surface, Onan appears to fulfill his father's request. In private, he refuses to give justice to the widow, refuses to give her a son that would end up taking care of her one day. Onan probably feared that a son born to Tamar would be privileged above all his sons born to him, reducing the importance of his own family line and reducing his share in Judah's inheritance. This was a selfish, hypocritical move on Onan. And it wasn't just this one move that God brought his justice against Onan, but I'm sure it's been building up over years and years and years and his heart is so unrepentant that God just brings him on to glory, takes his life. Guys, this is an incredibly selfish moment where God is pursuing justice for the widow. He said, I don't care about her. I'm just gonna use her. I'm gonna go to her and get my sexual gratification. I don't care. I'm not gonna care for her. And can I just say, guys, let's let's just pause. Let's not ever think that way about anybody. I know many of us in this room are like, I would never do that sexually, but how other ways do you use people? Some of us might be manipulators. I'll use my emotions. I'll use tears. I'll use words in order to make you feel bad so that I can feel better. I can get what I want. Some of us use others by beating them down verbally, by kind of pummeling them when they wronged you. And so you want to make them feel hurt like you feel hurt. And so you attack them verbally. Maybe you gossip, maybe you slander. Maybe you use your roommates and your your spouse to just serve all your needs and you just beat them down. Is this going to be cleaned up yet? And when are you going to help me with the kids? And why are you always like this? And you never that. And you're just beating up on them, trying to use them to serve yourself. Guys, we might not be exactly like Judah, but all of us have what Judah has in his heart and what Onan has in his heart. It's the selfishness of sin. Now guys, if I can just have a quick pause for a moment. Um, This passage, this particular couple verses has been used in a pretty wrong way in some circles. Um, This passage has been used to say that any type, any type of birth control would be sinful or wrong. Any sort of protective measures is sinful and wrong. And they... Uh, Some believe that that's why God uh, brought justice to Onan was because he decided not to use his sex organs in a godly way. That's not what we're seeing in this passage. God didn't kill Onan because of some sort of method of birth control. You guys see what I'm saying? That's, That's not what's at play here. God brought justice to Onan because he refused to bring justice to the widow. Does that make sense? That's what was going on. This is not about what we can or cannot use a protection in, in marriage. That's not what this is about. Make sure that's clear for us. Sex is intended for pleasure 
and procreation and connection, intimacy and bonding. Make sure that that's clear for us. Awkward moment over, let's move on. The last son, we've talked about Ur, Onan. What about Shelah? Shelah, verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, he said, listen, I want you just to get away. Remain a widow, go to your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. Here's why though, because he feared that Shelah would die. Like Judah thinks something's wrong with this woman because he gives over a son, the son dies. He's like, okay, I'll give the other son. Here's my son Onan, then he dies. So he's like, bro, something's wrong with this woman. Go away, go to your house, you're evil. And all along, who's the evil ones? The boys, these men. So he sends her away and says, hey, when Sheila grows up, he lies to her, then he'll come and marry you. So with hope, Tamar leaves and remains at her father's house. Ur is wicked, Onan's wicked, Sheila's wicked, Judah is wicked. But what's also the gospel antidote that these boys need to hear? Because also they grew up with wounds from their father. Ur in his wickedness needs to hear this, the first son. He needs to hear Psalm 16, and maybe your heart does as well. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God, another wickedness, those sorrows are gonna multiply. The drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, not other gods. Church, how do we not become like Ur? Is we make God our supreme King and Lord. No other God. We follow no other Lord. That's what he needs to hear. That God is good. He's a chosen portion and cup that fills you. Onan, Onan, what does he need to hear? He needs to learn that sexual gratification is not the thing that's gonna fulfill him. Using people in selfishness will not fulfill him. What will? Psalm 16, five and six. He needs to hear, Onan, the Lord is your chosen portion and your cup. He holds your lot. The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places, even if it wasn't your plan to marry Tamar. God has a will and a purpose. The line have fallen in pleasant places. Trust him. Indeed, you're gonna have a beautiful inheritance. Church, some of you need to hear, you might not have liked how God laid out the cards dealt to you. You don't like the lines that have fallen in place for you. I want you to trust him. Trust him. It's leading somewhere for a purpose that he has for you. Trust him even in the place that you don't maybe want to be in, just like Onan. He didn't want to be there. I don't want to marry her. I don't want to give her justice. I don't want to care for her. Trust God and his purpose wherever you are in life. Last, Sheila. Sheila's selfish, fearful, lazy, talks to his dad. Dad, I don't want to marry her. I'm going to die too. I don't want to trust God that I should marry her and give her a child. I, I just want her to go away. He needs to hear this. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, there's fullness of joy, not fear. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is where we find fulfillment, is in him and his ways. That's what Sheila needed to hear. Then lastly, you guys ready for Tamar? You guys okay with the screens? It'll wake you up every once in a while if you get sleepy. Bam, screen, there you go. Tamar, what about her? What's the downward spiral in her heart? Let's look at verse 12 and let's unpack Tamar and what's going on here. In the course of some time, some more years have passed, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, 
he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. He went with his friend Harah, the Adulamite, again. Now, guys, this is a problem because every time we see this formula, something bad happens, right? When you see Judah have an unhealed wound, we see that because his wife is now passed, and he has an unchecked desire, which is the desire to hang out with his bad-influenced buddy, Harah, the Adulamite. Anytime we see an unhealed wound, Clyde, with an unchecked desire, what happens? An ungodly choice that hurts you and others. And that's exactly what we see happen next. Verse 13. And when Tamar was told, hey, Tamar, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah. It's time for him to shear his sheep. Verse 14, she takes off her widow's garments and she covers herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance to Enium, which is on the road to Timnah. Now, why did she do that? Why did she change her clothes and cover her face? The text tells us this. For she saw that Sheila was now grown up and that she had not been given him in marriage like Judah promised. Church, do you see what's happening here? You see what's happening? Tamar has been waiting on a promise that Judah had given her that he never ended up intending to fulfill. In verse 11, he promised that when his son Sheila would get old enough, he would give him to her in marriage. So guys, Tamar has been waiting and waiting and waiting for years and years and years for Judah to fulfill this promise. But when she finally sees Sheila later, she realized that she's been tricked. Judah was never going to give her his son. And so she devises now a plan to trick Judah back. And it's about to get crazy. Verse 15, when Judah saw her on the road, He didn't recognize her, verse 15. He thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face, verse 16. So he turned to her at the roadside and said to her, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Guys, again, you're watching just how far Judah is spiraling out of control. And so she answers, hey, what will you give me then? that you will come into me. Now, Paul, I don't exactly know if she like planned this prostitution moment. She did plan to like hide her face. I don't know if she was going into that day to like maybe have a conversation to confront him. But whatever the case may be, there was a window that she took. There's a window of his deception, his sinfulness in his heart. He's like, hey, if you're a prostitute, I want to have sex with you. And I don't know that she planned that to be the case or regardless, but the window opens and then she says, okay, what will you give me then if I let you have sex with me? Verse 17. And he answered, I will give you a young goat from the flock. By the way, a really cheap price. And she said, okay, we can do that, but I know your flock's not here. So first you got to give me a pledge. Give me a pledge and then you can send me a goat from the flock later. And he said, okay, fine, sure. Verse 18, what pledge should I give you? What do you want as collateral? She replied, I want three things. And guys, these three things are gonna be so key. She says, I want your signet, I want your cord, and I want your what? Staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and then she conceived by him. 
Verse 19, then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. Then she puts back on her garments of widowhood. Guys, Judah played right into her hand. The trickster was tricked. She knew that sex was Judah's besetting sin. And I'm not letting Judah off the hook, by the way. I'm not just roasting her. I'm roasting both of them. Judah's at fault here as well. So is Tamar. She knew that sex was Judah's besetting sin. So she used that to trick Judah into having sex with her, to finally give her the child that she had always wanted. The desire at first was right. I want a child. I want justice. Judah, you didn't give me justice. That desire is right at first. But when you have an unchecked desire, meets a wound, she's angry, she's hurt, it ends up in an ungodly choice. And unfortunately, she pursues justice the wrong way and it ends up hurting her and others. By the way, this, this moment of sex is, is so not intimate. It's so contractual. I wanna come into you. I don't know who you are. What's gonna cost? A goat. I don't have a goat. What do you want in the meantime? I want these three objects. Okay, sex, child. There is no connection. There's no intimacy. They, you can just feel the very end of it. They just leave unfulfilled, unknown, unloved. That's what sex often does when we don't entrust it to God's design. Guys, this is not popular, but this is true for us. Many of us in this room have experienced sex that was not in God's design in the confines and comfort of a loving marriage between one man and a woman. And you have felt that maybe if you've acted out in that way and you felt how hopeless and empty and unsatisfying that actually truly was and, and then the hurt and pain when that relationship broke up, you feel like you, you might've lost a part of yourself. That's the unfulfilling sex that we see happen here. We see later that God will heal that wound and God will comfort that and God can heal and comfort that for you. You didn't lose a part of yourself because God lost his life so that you could have new life in him. But this is what we see happen in this scene. But guys, hidden in the details, I really want you to see if you checked out, which none of you look like you're checked out, but if you did, come back, here we are. Hidden in the details of this passage, we learned that it really wasn't a child that Tamar was after, was it? Tucked into her request for Judah's signet cord and staff, we learn what her heart was really after and it's what your heart is really after. Do you see it? The signet, let's look at it, the signet. The signet actually symbolizes her desire for belonging and identity. That's what she wanted. Listen, Judah must have worn some, some type of like ring or item that had his signature or initials engraved into it. And so he would use this signet to mark or identify something that belonged to him and his family that he loved. And so it's her desire for this signet that we see the core longing of Tamar's heart was really to be loved, to be marked with belonging. Remember her first husband died. Her second husband died. She's awaiting this third husband that she never got. We learned that she's a Canaanite woman, which was the people that were running away and rebelling against God. We learned that her life wasn't filled with a lot of love and care and romance, and she just wanted to be loved and belonged. 
She wanted to belong to someone. She wanted to be marked with love and affection by another. She wanted, listen, to be chosen, sought after, selected, and loved. And sadly, she was willing to give up herself sexually, just trying to get at that core longing. It really wasn't about sex. It really wasn't about a kid. It really wasn't about the ring. It's what the ring symbolized. It was to be loved and to belong. Church, can I just be honest for a moment? Can you see yourself there a little bit? I can see myself there too. Guys, what signet are you after? Hoping to be marked by so that you would be valuable. For some of us, it's, a, it's literally the letters of a PhD or a master's. If I can have that stamped next to my name, then I would rise in importance and then I'll be respected. Then I'll be loved. Then I can have a job and be secure. And then people will look at me and say, wow, look how much you've accomplished You want the signet of PhD, master's, graduate. You want the promotion in your job. I want to be director. I want to be CFO. I want to be CEO. I want to be supervisor. And that bump makes you feel more important, more loved. Guys, we do this all over the map, every single one of us. Many of us, you've even hopped from one dating relationship to the next, to the next, because the thought of being single too long scares you. Am I unlovable? Why am I not married? I'm this old. Why is all my other friends married? There must be something. And what do we say to ourselves? There must be something wrong with me. I want to be marked by a man or woman's love. The fact they chose me, they deemed me worthy. And you know what the cross is symbolized? Jesus on the cross saying, this, this is the sign. The nails in my hands, the piercings, the blood, the crown of thorns, this is the sign that you're worthy. This is how you know that you're loved and valuable and cared for and sacrificed. This is what lets you know you're loved, you're chosen. That's the gospel we need to hear, friends. This is the gospel that she needs to hear. Listen, if we struggle with this like I do, this is the gospel you need to hear, First Peter 2. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once, my friend, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And first, or excuse me, in Ephesians 1.13, once you had not received mercy, but now you are marked by mercy This is what she needed to hear about the signet. That's what you need to hear as well. Second thing was that cord, the cord she wanted, signet and then cord. The cord actually symbolized something. It was comfort and security. Listen, Judah must have worn some type of expensive necklace around him, something that had great value to him and that he could sell for money of great value in his day. So when Tamar asks for his cord in return for sex, it's not really the money that she's after. It's the security and comfort that she thinks money can bring. At this point, she again has no husband to care for her. She has no child to care for her. She has no job to care for her since she has been waiting at her father's house for this promised son to come marry her. And so it's, it's her desire for this cord that we see the core longing of Tamar's heart all along. Guys, all she wants is really comfort and security. She really just wants to be cared for and provided for. She wanted the money to take care of her. Why? Because no one else in her life would really care for her. So she was willing as a result 
to give up her convictions and pursue money because she thought, if I can have that, then that will take care of me. I need the cord. Church, how many of us do the exact same thing? Guys, we think money or things that money can buy will bring us happiness or status or security. We're either anxiously hoarding our money, thinking that enough of it will make us feel safe and secure for the future, or we frantically buy things and experiences and trips and adventures, hoping that money will numb our pain and heal our emptiness. Guys, we do the same thing she does. We seek after the cord, thinking it will give us comfort and security, amen? Here's a gospel antidote for your heart. Psalm 23, here's the comfort and hope that you really need. You need the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. There's comfort and security. He leads me beside still waters. There's comfort and security. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Guys, God is the ultimate shepherd, better than any spouse, better than any job, better than anything money can buy. We got to turn to the shepherd and see the comfort and security he brings. I wish someone had told that to Tamar. And I want to tell that to you. Last thing here, the staff, the staff. It symbolized, the staff did, care and protection, protection. As was custom in his day, Judah would have carried a staff with him as he traveled from town to town. That way, if a threat arose, if an animal, if a thief on the road would come at him, he could defend himself with this staff. And so it's her desire for the staff that we see the core longing in Tamar's heart was really for care and protection. She didn't really care for the staff itself. It's what the staff symbolized. She wanted someone or something to care for her, to look out for her, to protect her, to provide for her. She wanted this staff thinking that with it would come the care and protection that she's always desired. Like Tamar, we do the same thing. And as a result, we need to hear the same gospel antidote that she needs to hear. Don't we learn about the great shepherd in Psalm 23, that his rod and his staff will comfort you? That God is the one that brings protection and care, that nothing the enemy can conjure up will be used against you. We learn Isaiah 41.10, I wish you heard this. Fear not, Tamar. Fear not, church. God's with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. He'll strengthen you. He'll help you. He'll uphold you by his righteous right hand. I wish you and she would hear Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be in fear or be in dread of anything, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, church. Because of Christ, God will not leave or forsake you. Signet, the cord, the staff, all represent things we search for. But all their fulfillment comes really in Christ and who he is and walking deeply with what he's already given. Amen. Last thing, the shortest thing, number two. We talked about this last week. We see it again this week. We see that devastating sins are turned into divine setups in the hands of a sovereign God. I love the ending of this story we fast forward to the end of the story we see in verse 24. It's about three months later from this incident between Judah and Tamar. And her pregnancy is beginning to show a little bit. She's got some morning sickness. Things are different. And it's at this point, verse 24, Judah was told, Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar, she's been immoral. Moreover, she's actually pregnant by the immorality. And Judah basically loses his mind. He's like, bring her out. 
Let her be burned. This is wild. Let's just calm down, Judah. Not a great response for her or the life that's in her womb. Terrible response. But in his heart, he's like, aha, I knew she was evil. Because my first son died, my second son died. I knew she was an immoral woman. And self-righteousness builds up in his heart. I knew I should never give her my third son. I'm right in this. He's being self-righteous and incredibly hypocritical because what are we about to find out? Woohoo! You're the dad. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, about to be burned, she sent word to her father-in-law. She goes, hey, hey, go tell Judah this. By the man to whom these items belong, I'm pregnant by this man. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah looked at them and identified, I'm the dad, it was me. Or as Taylor Swift would say, I'll let you say it in your own head. Did Jenna, do you say it out loud? <laughs> I felt that. There's a song she sang. She's like, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. That's exactly what happens with Judah here. Yeah, some of you are like, oh, Taylor. Yeah. So Judah, amen, that's right. Amen, amen. Judah recognized he's the problem. And he says that that woman, she's more righteous than I since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he didn't know her again. Now, just quick pause. We won't take too much time here. This is a turning moment in Judah's life. Remember, he's the one that sold his brother into slavery. He recognized that I'm the sinful one. She's more righteous than I. I am wrong. At the very end, we fast forward the story. We see Joseph is in the palace and he's like, guys, go back to your father, but you got to leave one kid with me. You got to leave Benjamin with me. And who steps up? Judah steps up and says, hey, don't take Benjamin, take me. I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer as sacrifice. Keep me here, keep me prisoner. He sacrificed himself. How does he go from being selfish to now sacrificing himself? Repentance is the answer. He sees his sin. And then in a moment, he's gonna see his savior. And church, that's what we need. We need to behold God in such a way we see how beautiful and loving and forgiving and truthful and right his paths are and that allows us to turn from our sin because we trust his ways are better than ours. This moment's a turning moment, which we'll get to in another week. So here's how the story ends. Ends in such a hopeful and healing way. Verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. I love that, by the way. God's bringing justice. Remember the first two sons didn't give her sons? So what's God do? Bam, you get two. God's giving justice to her. Verse 28. And when she was in labor, this is, imagine this is pretty tough labor here. One of the kids put out his hand and the midwife took and tied, what'd she tie? A scarlet thread around his hand saying, ha, this one came out first. And the child drew back his hand and behold, the other brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Verse 30, afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zerah. Guys, in this conclusion, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel on display. A gospel picture of how God turns devastating sins and he turns it into divine setups through his sovereign hand. Guys, listen, if we follow this scarlet thread through Tamar's family line from one generation to the next, do you know where it leads us? Do you know what comes from her womb? It leads us all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ 
himself. The one whose scarlet blood would be shed on the cross to pay for the very sins that his ancestor Tamar and Judah had done. This scarlet thread points us to the scarlet cross. The blood was shed that covered your sins, my sins, and their sins. In Matthew chapter one, we see Tamar's name listed in the sacred genealogy that leads to the birth of Christ. And this story is proof that God loves to heal and use broken people for his glory. Guys, Tamar was a Gentile woman born outside the covenant of people of Israel. And even in her sin, her sorrow, her setbacks, God would love, heal, and use her for his glory in order to bring the Messiah into the world. This story isn't just a hiccup. It's not a side quest. It's showing you that in the brokenness, in the mess of sin, God can still redeem it. God can still put it back together. So even if Ur never gave her a son, even though Onan never gave her a son and Sheila never gave her a son, God would end up giving her his son, his one and only son through her line. What a beautiful moment of redemption. And this son, Jesus Christ, is the only son that could actually save her from that burning fire that would Judah set out to punish her by. And church, Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us from the penalty of sin and death in hell that we deserve for our sin. Here is our gospel hope, the same gospel hope he gave to Tamar. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Church, if you find yourself hurting, broken, and far from God in sin, see Tamar's love that God gave her. See God's love for Tamar. And in it, you'll see God's love for you as well. Church, Christian, non-Christian, listen, would you turn to him today so that you can have your sin be turned into a setup for forgiveness and freedom and fulfillment in him? For he has greater grace, my friend, than your greatest sins. Let's pray together. 